coming to you from the Sherpa Chalet at the top of beautiful downtown Mount Podcastia. It's a special episode of Too Many Podcasts. I'm Jim, the Podcast Sherpa, and today it's a special episode where I get to speak with people from the entertainment industry. So get yourself an aisle seat, pop up some popcorn, and get a cold drink ready, and sit back. Don't crunch too loud, or else you'll miss the interview from the Sherpa Screening Room. Hey Rebels, welcome to the Sherpa Screening Room, a presentation of Too Many Podcasts. You know me, Jim the Podcast Sherpa. Just want to let you know that today's podcast is being brought to you by Audible, and you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash Sherpa. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Let's talk a little bit about my guest today. So if I told you he's Fort Ken Norton, he's Fort... George Foreman, and you'd probably say, oh yeah, did he fight Superman too? Uh, yeah, he did fight Superman in the first Superman movie as the villain Non. His name is Jack O'Halloran, and we had a nice little chat about his life and his book and other things going on in his career. Let's take a listen. Hey Rebels, you know, when I do this show, the Sherpa Screening Room, I get to talk to people who are part of the movie business or the television business and always have interesting stories. And my guest today has a history in the movies, but his life story, I think, makes for an interesting movie in itself. Well, he's had a book out for a little while, and it's called Family Legacy, and he's been a professional fighter and an actor as well. So say hello to Mr. Jack O'Halloran. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Going well. Yourself? I'm doing very well, thank you. So Good. congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you. And you're calling this a, a, a fictional memoir. Well, it, it, they wouldn't let me do it nonfiction. They wouldn't. The government told me they wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me publish it. So we added some fiction, and it satisfied everybody's soul. So, but it's about probably eighty percent pure knowledge. Now we should uh, kind of go into this a little bit. Uh, you found out that your your birth father was Albert Anastasio. Anastasio, correct. And he was a a, a refuted uh, mobster. Correct. Is that the correct word? Can I say that? Is that all right? Oh yeah, no, that's correct. No, he was okay. uh, he he ran a little company called Murder Incorporated in New York, <laughs> and he was partners with Charlie Luciana and Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello, and he became a very powerful man. He was he was uh, he was uh, the the Gambino family was the Anastasia family. And when they assassinated Albert in 57, it became the Gambino family because Carlo Gambino was his underboss. But you were raised by your, your mom and your stepdad? Yeah, my mother. And, my, and I had a minder around me that my father put down around me. So um, I was in good hands. When did you realize that, that Albert Anastasia was your father? Uh, right before he was assassinated. I was 14 years old. And I had met him for the first time, and uh, then we were supposed to sit down and have a really super meeting, and unfortunately, before that happened, he was assassinated. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. One of the most profound assassinations in the history of the more organized crime, but, you know, they, uh, and they made a very bad mistake, and they knew it. But when you, when you look at The Godfather and you listen to Brando, when they went to Brando about the drug business, and he turned them down, and he said that if we touch it, our children will touch it, it'll be the downfall of the families. My father said that. And my father ran all the ports 
and he said, you're not bringing that stuff in through my ports. That's all there is to it. He said, we didn't sign up for that business. And they just kept saying to him, but Albert, it's, it's, it's money, Albert. It's, only, it's all about money. And he said, not in my book. So, you know, it's, uh, they did what they did, and then they were sorry they did it because he was the glue that held everything together. And they, everything went downhill after his assassination. And how did Meyer Lansky come into your life as well? I know he was part of your your life story as well, right? Well, Meyer was my father's partner, and uh, Meyer sort of looked after me after my father died. And, you know, he's the one that told me. He said, you know, a year later, two years later, he said, we we made a terrible, terrible mistake. And uh, and he explained a lot of things to me. And so he, he, uh, he sort of... Uh, enlightened me on a lot of stuff and my father had left me like 287 pages of written material depicting on what was going on and what was going to happen and where everything came from so then I was close to Frank Costello and, and I met Charlie Luciana in Italy and uh, you know it, it's, all the pieces fell in place now now for some people they probably don't understand what that kind of life is like could you kind of offer a little bit of insight well, it's changed so much, but there's, uh, you know, there's a code that you live by, uh, Amerta, and uh, if you choose to, if you choose to follow that lens of life, if you don't choose to do it. You should never go, you should never go that far to take that oath. And you know, I, I have a lot of friends of mine that have done, you know, 30 years in jail or better because they would never talk or, or rat on anybody. You know, so. They were made examples of and stuff like that, but they, they still stood up. And then there's other people that just, I mean, they'd sell their mother down the river to stay out of jail. So there's the problem with that way of life today is that there's not very many men of honor anymore, unfortunately. And like you said, the, the way that the business is run is probably very different from, from when you knew it back in, I guess, probably in the 60s, right? Oh, my heavens. It's like night and day. You know, but there's, you know, the, the, the fact is that uh, a lot of us have went legitimate, so we, you know, we 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 know how to make a way through life, and we know how to put things together, and we still have different people we can reach out to to make things happen, and you know, it's uh, everything is a basic fundamental of how you want to live your life today. You know, either I mean, our society unfortunately is going to, uh, down a spiral, and. You know, the one thing that's missing drastically in our society is the word respect. You know, people don't respect themselves. How can they respect someone else? Everybody's using these texts, and nobody talks to each other anymore. Everyone texts back and forth, and you don't see people face-to-face, -face, so you really don't know who you're even talking to. Now, all of this really ties into your book, Family Legacy. Correct. To tell the truth about a lot of things that happened. In other words, in the beginning... You had the government, industry, organized crime, and uh, unions were all partners. You know, they, they worked cohesively together, actually. You know, and you didn't have drive-by shootings, and you didn't have guns on every corner, and you didn't have... I mean, when I was a young boy in Philadelphia being raised, we never locked our front door. You know, you could leave a baby pram outside. Children played in the streets from sunup to sundown. You never went home. You were always out in the street playing. You know, doing something, and uh, it just was—it was a whole different environment. Neighborhoods were looked after better, taken care of better. 
you know, people uh, trusted each other better. It was just uh, a whole different deal. And, it, it, you know, and, and as we got older and older and older, you know, things changed. And it's, it's very sad what you see in, in the streets today. People, some people are afraid to come out of their house. That's why they go to social media. They do everything off of the Internet and everything. And it's uh, just a whole different state of affairs. It's funny, like progress really kind of makes us go backwards. Well, only if you choose to. You know, it's, uh, it's like how many families do you know that really sit down and have dinner together every night? Very true. You know, when I was raised up at 6 o'clock, you were at the dinner table, and you better have a good excuse if you weren't. You know, so your parents and people looked you eyeball to eyeball. They knew whether kids were on drugs or anything of that nature. People discussed what was going on in the day. You know, yeah. today it's a hit-and-run deal all over the place. How did you get into boxing? I was playing football, and uh, you, when you, when you, in that era, when I was when I was playing ball, if you were going, if you were good enough to go into the pros, you couldn't go in until your class graduated from college because they didn't have any hardship cases in those days. So a lot of people that were went a year to college or two years to college and then left. Uh, and teams would pick them up because they had a lot of talent. They would uh, put you on uh, like almost like a farm baseball team, but it was football. And uh, semi-pro teams up and down the East Coast and all over the country, actually. And uh, a lot of us played. I played for a team called Tinicum outside of Philadelphia. And uh, and you played there until you, until you were eligible to play pro, but you were under agreement already with a professional team. So... I was under agreement to the New York Jets, and when 65, 60, when I was eligible to play, I, uh, I had a lot of friends down in Philadelphia, and Philly had a great team, and then they joked you, Harrick, um, uh, Jerry Wallman bought the team, and he brought this coach, Joe Kuharik, and, and I watched the guy trade a championship football team away in a month and a half. Traded Sonny Jurgensen and Tommy McDonald to Washington for Norman Steed, and I mean, just some ridiculous trades, and and I said, wow, man, this is not good. And then Muhammad Ali had just won the title. So I said to a couple friends of mine, I could beat that guy. <laughs> and they, they put me in the gym, and the next thing I know, I was fighting professional. <laughs> you were known as Irish Jack Cowron from Boston. Yeah, and I was from Philadelphia. And I, they, I got sent to Boston because the first couple fights I had, we were in Philly, and... Uh, and I got in a little bit of a jackpot in the streets, and they had to get me out of town, so they shipped me up to Boston. And I boxed out of Boston for it. Then I, at the end of my career, I was out of San Diego. I was California heavyweight champion. Yes, and, and you're also in the the California Boxing Hall of Fame as well. And, and Jersey, too? California Boxing Hall of Fame, the New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame, Pennsylvania Boxing Hall of Fame, um, and a few of them, yeah. Yeah, and you were undefeated in your first... 16 professional fights. 16 professional fights, and then they found out that I had uh, a disease called acromeglia, which is a tumor of the pituitary gland, and the doctor said, how can you, you shouldn't be fighting at all. What are you doing? How do you even get your mind, because it causes great depression, they say, and stuff. And I just, uh, I said, yeah, really good. I need a day job. This is my day job. Thank you very much. So I, you know, and I really, you know, I'm angry at my own self because I had a tremendous God-gifted talent that I abused. And uh, I didn't, if I had put into boxing what I should have put into it, I probably would have 
had a good shot at being champion of the world. Yeah, and you didn't have too shabby a record. You were 34, 21, and 2 with 17 knockouts. Knockout victory. Yeah, and a lot of the, lot of the decisions were hometown decisions for uh, a lot of fighters that, you know, I, I used to take fights on a week notice, four days notice. And, you know, I just, it, if I was doing business for the unions or something in a certain part of the country, and then someone offered me a fight, I took it. To have an excuse to be there. So mm-hmm. no one could tie me to anything, you know. Out of sight, out of mind. I was still oh, a hooligan, you know what I mean? And as a heavyweight, you also fought George Foreman and Ken Norton. Oh, I fought them all. Yeah, Norton I beat badly, and they, they gave him a hometown decision. Actually, I could have sat on a stool in the ninth round. The, the end of the uh, ninth round, the, 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 it was such a great fight, and it was a great fight. People were standing on their chairs screaming so loud. When they rang the bell, nobody heard it. They rang it three times, and finally the referee separated us because we were in the middle of the ring slugging each other. And they separated us, and I was going back to my corner, and Norton ran across the ring and hit me behind the head and drove me into the ring post. And Joey Almas, the uh, commissioner, jumped up in the ring and said, you know, if you can't continue, you just won the fight on the foul. And I should have just sat on the stool and stayed there because it was his hometown, and they were trying to get him to fight for the title, so there was no way that I was going to get a decision down. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, I got angry. I said, well, don't you worry. I'm going to take care of business. And, but I won the city, so I stayed there, and uh, and I knocked out a few guys in a row, and then I fought Henry Clark for the state title, and, and I beat Henry Clark, and no one else would fight him. So, you know, it worked out pretty well. It's just the end of my career, you know, and then, at the end of my career, when I retired, uh, they offered me, well, they had been offering me films all the way through my career, and I kept turning them down. And uh, they came to me with Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum, and it was a starring role. And I said, you know what, maybe it's time. So they flew me out. I did a screen test, and Mitchum said it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame it all on Robert Mitchum. What was Robert Mitchum like? Oh, he was brilliant. He was uh, he was such a dear friend. I mean, he became like a father. He was great. He was uh, probably the most well-read man I ever met in my life. Uh, he was he was a very bright guy. He was a tremendous actor, and he was just a down-to-earth individual. And he, I mean, he 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 walked me right through the. I mean, Farewell, My Love is a great movie. If you've never seen it, you, you should look it up. You would enjoy it. it was very well made. Had a great cast. We had four Oscar winners on the on the crew. Dean Televeris was done the Godfather for sets and designs. He won the Oscar. The cinematographer was John Alonzo, who won the Oscar for Chinatown. Uh, the makeup guys were Oscar winners. The special effects guy was an Oscar winner. And they all come to work because of Mitchum. Robert Mitchum kind of comes across as a guy who was one of those people who were probably eternally cool. Oh, yeah. Mitchum was incredible. Robert was... Uh, Robert was a story and a legend in itself. I mean, they, Robert was, he was very close to Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes thought, loved him a lot. You know, when he, uh, when he got busted back in the 40s for marijuana, he said it was a setup. He said, I walked into a party, I looked around, he said, I just put my hands out. I knew they were going to cuff me. They wanted them to rattle on everybody in town that smoked pot. And they put him in jail, and Howard Hughes went down there to see him in jail. And Hughes was a, a Clinsley fanatic, you know. Uh, and he, he said, Robert told me the story. He said, he's standing outside of my cell, Jack, and he's looking in and he's saying, Robert, you do not have to be in this filthy, disgusting place. 
of all these filthy, disgusting people. <laughs> Mitch would say, well, Howard, I'm in this wonderful establishment with all these kind-hearted, wonderful people. And he, he did six months. He wouldn't rat on anybody. And then when he came out, Howard Hughes gave him a huge check, and his career never suffered. You know? Now, after that, you were actually off uh, as, a, as a Bond villain, as, as Jaws in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, I turned it down. I was uh, I did Farewell, My Lovely, and then I did King Kong with Jessica Lange, and uh, King Kong was a big movie. And they, they loved, Cubby Broccoli loved what I did in Farewell, My Lovely, and, and they wanted me to play this character in Jaws, and I really wasn't crazy about the script, and I was trying to get my career more like uh, Victor McLaughlin. And, uh, uh, so they, and I was doing a picture called March or Die uh, with Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve and Max and Cedow, and, and I probably could have got out of it, and I could have went over and done the Bond movie, but... You know, I told him, I said, well, let's see what, if my agent can get me out of this other movie, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't, I, I didn't press the issue. And, uh, and you know, uh, probably a good thing I didn't because I, I got done the, the uh, March of Die movie and then two weeks later I was doing Superman. You did Superman 1 and, and 2 and you played Non, as everybody yeah. remembers, the, the big guy out of the, uh, the trio of the, of the Krypton villains. When you met, you got to meet Marlon Brando, I guess, right? Well, Brando and I became very good friends. He knew my father pretty well. He couldn't wait to meet me, actually. Brando I was, was going to ask, because you know, knowing what you knew about organized crime and you were dealing with, you know, working with the man who played the Godfather, you probably had some great conversations. Yeah, we did. And he, like I said, he knew my father well. Marlon was, I love Marlon. Marlon was a good guy. He was a tremendous actor. And he was, uh, I just liked him. He was a really good person. I enjoyed working with him, and, you know, he was, it's magic when you work with people. You learn so much from people like that, you know. It just helps you in everything you do in your in your career, so it was good. Very fortunate. I worked with a lot of very good actors in my in my career. And I, ironically, you ended up in a movie called Mob Boss in, later, later on in your career. I did that as a favor of somebody, yeah. It was, uh, it was a low-budget little movie that this guy was putting together, and and he uh, asked me if I would do a, a role in it, and I said, sure. But it helped him get the money for it. It was, it was good. And it, it, it was a nice little film. We had, we had a lot of fun doing it. When you did Superman, you didn't get along too well with Christopher Reeve? That story is so taken out of context, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> you know, when you work with anybody for three years, and you work closely with them, you know, there's always some kind of an argument somewhere. And, and it really wasn't that much of an argument. It was the fact that uh, London had very few uh, good Italian restaurants. And there's one called the San Lorenzo in Beach and Place, which is like a paparazzi joint. Princess Di used to go to, but the owners of it were dear friends of mine. So I, you know, I would spoon it up to everybody. To, you know, old people lived in London. We should eat dinner down there and stuff and drummed up a lot of business for them, you know. And uh, and I used to eat my dinner there every night because I lived in Cadogan Square right down the street. I just walk up to the restaurant and sit down and eat. And they cook for me the way I know and, you know the Italian food that I like to eat. Christopher Reeve was in there one night with with a whole bunch of people from the film, and he's talking about me and my father and New York and the mafia and everything, and he's talking a bunch of garbage. And the guy that owned the restaurant called me on the phone and said, Jack, he said, how well do you know this Christopher Reeve kid? And I said, well, why? And he told me. And I said, well, 
So Christopher, unfortunately, was like a young kid. Superman was the first big movie he ever did, and he did it well. I mean, Richard Donner got a performance out of him. You'll never see another another Superman do, that will do that role as well as Christopher did. So the next day I went to the studio, and I, I grabbed him up, and we went into a little room. We had a chat, and, and, uh, and, you know, and I made it very clear that you don't talk about my family and you don't talk about me, and, and he understood. And we, so when we get outside in the hallway in front of all the people, and all of a sudden he becomes Superman. He said, you can't talk to me that way. I, 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 I said, what? What are you? What? And I threw him against the wall, and I was just ready to hit him. And Dick Donner jumped up in my ear and said, Jack, not in the face. Don't hit him in the face. I busted out laughing and dropped him on the floor, and you know, and I, and I just let it go. And it was the end. And that was the whole skirmish, that everybody is so, you know, taken out of proportion. But you know, it was it was done. It was over with. And you know, Chris was a good kid. He just was a kid, though. He, some people don't know how to walk out of a character when you walk off the set. You know, sure. They carry it around with them all the time. Oh, you know, thank God he did. He, I mean, he did a great job in the film. Great Superman. In fact, when they dismissed Donner, uh, had Christopher stood up and said, "No Donner, no me," they would have never got rid of Donner. They couldn't have. And I was a little bit irked at him for for that because Hackman never came back. I almost didn't go back. And you know, uh, it was the stupidest thing they ever did was firing Donner. You said that there could have been a little bit more to your character as well, right? Well, they just, you know, Lester and Donner are like night and day, you know, director-wise. So if you see the Donner cut, it's a much better film. I don't know if you've ever watched the Donner of Superman 2. Because we had shot like 85% of the movie. But they had to go back and reshoot a lot of stuff because for a new director to put his name on the picture as a director, he has to have shot better than 50% of it. But then to take, how do you cut Marlon Brando out of a picture? They had already paid him. They already shot the footage. The reason they cut him out is because they didn't want to pay him the points, which was the dumbest thing. I mean, and, and in the Donner cut, he's all there. He's all through it. You know, it's a, came out, it's, it's kind of a, if you haven't seen the Donner cut, you should look at it. Donner would have done Superman 3, 4, 5, and 6. It would have been a whole different franchise. I, just, I think sometimes you just get that chemistry between actors and directors, and, it, you know, you get magic yeah. on the screen. Well, Richard Donner lived the Superman thing. He, in fact, he did the comic books. He still does them, I think. Uh, him and Mankiewicz, they, they just love the subject. So they put a lot of time and energy into doing it correctly. And Superman 1 is a great movie. And the Donner cut of 2 is a great film. And, and, and even the Lester cut works because it was a great cast. You know, it was a lot of, and there was a lot of footage that was shot and the premise was there, but... You know, Lester had to add a little comedy to it, which I thought was kind of dumb. But uh, while we're talking about your your movie career and boxing, now we can kind of almost make a little segue. Now you said that there's actually a tie-in between you and the Rocky movie. Well, that was my life. I mean, when we did Farewell, My Lovely, Stallone did a small role in the movie, and he was writing the script, and he picked my brain every single day. He had never been to Philadelphia. And, and I was the gangster fighter. My, I was involved with, with organized crime from day one of my life, you know. And, uh, and I explained the waterfront to him. And, and the part where he breaks the eggs in the morning and drinks that, that I do that every day. I, he got that from me. I still do it. Were you ever credited? 
No, I never pushed the button on him. I, you know, I, I mean, Chuck Wepner sued him and got money. <laughs> Chuck was the bleeder. But Chuck right. was from Bayonne, New Jersey. You know, Chuck never was down in Philadelphia. But I explained all Philadelphia to him, all the lineages of fighters and, and the gym that, that he would up those steps. That was the gym we trained at, Pat's Young Gym. Uh, you know, it uh, was on the corner like that, and, and everybody was singing on the corners, harmonizing and stuff. And that was just, there was a lot of musical talent that came out of Philadelphia in that era. You know, you had Bobby Rydell, you had Paul, Paul Anka. You, I mean, uh, just one group on top of another. So there was a lot of talent that came out of the city, and everybody used to be harmonizing on corners, thinking they were going to get a, a record deal. <laughs> did you ever do the training where you were actually punching the, the beef? I did a similar thing to that, and I told him about it, and he, he, he elaborated on it. Wow, see, this is something that a lot of people really don't know, you know, where, where some of this inspiration comes from. Well, and so, I was signed to fight Ali four times, you know, so I explained all that to him. And he took it a step further to where he fought for the title and jazz like, and I told him how close it came, up, up, up. And, you know, and he, and he, he used a lot of it. And, you know, God bless him. You know, the Rocky movie was, it was a good movie. You know, it just uh, it showed how some people can come from nothing to something, and then how they can lose it if they don't keep their eyeballs on it. He's still, he's still making movies pertaining to Rocky. Now, unfortunately, when you were boxing, you, you never actually got to fight Muhammad Ali because I guess one of the contenders had knocked you out, but then you had a rematch with that contender, Jimmy Somerville, and then you knocked him out. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I, I was supposed to fight Ali before that. When, when Norton fought Ali, he was supposed to fight me. We had a contract and everything. Norton's uh, people were very wealthy, and $3 million went up to Chicago to Herbert Muhammad, and Muhammad Ali called me on the phone begging to apologize. He said, I don't, I don't know how to say this to you, but... He said, I'll, I'll find a place, we'll fight somewhere. And, uh, and he fought Norton instead. And he and I were great friends. I mean, I, Ali and I, was, he, was, he, was, he, he was one of the good guys in life. He would have been a great athlete in anything he did, any oh, sport. Sure. All right, so nowadays you, you were actually working on building a studio. Yeah, we're, uh, we're in Nevada, and we're going to build the biggest studio in the history of the business, and the business needs it. It warrants it. And... Uh, it's going to work out very well. That's what I'm doing over here. We're over here putting pieces together now. When do you think the studio will be ready? In a couple of years. And, okay. we're, and we're doing something. We're building it with industrial hemp, which is going to revolutionize construction because it's a great material to work with, and it's stronger and better than concrete and better than steel, and, and it's going to be good, boy. It's, it's, uh, we're really looking forward to it. And we can build it much faster. Let me ask you this. I mean, given all that's happened in your life, I mean, you've got a very colorful life. <laughs> to, to, to say the least, you know, you've got the book out already, which, you know, documents a good portion of it. Would you ever want to see a movie made about your, your life going from, you know, being a fighter through an actor? And we're going to, you know, they keep saying they want me to write a book that, that ties everything in. I said, it's coming because I wrote the first book, the second, third, and I think we might... There's three more books I think we'll put out, and it's uh, and we're going to tell. And then I, you know, the, the, I had a meeting today with Charlie Luciana's son, uh, Anthony Scotty, and he's got a bunch of material in his father's book. And so we're going to not only we're going to do movies, but we're going to do a television series, and we're going to go back to the beginning and bring it forward and show how the country actually opened up and, and evolved, and tell things about things that no one ever talks about, and tell the truth about a lot of things. It's going to stagger people. My book 
goes from my father's death to Kennedy's death, and I told the truth about the Kennedy assassination, which a lot of people have written so many fallacies about and let everybody down so many paths that, you know, it's just the truth should be told. You know, Jack Kennedy was shot three times, wasn't shot just once. Oswald never pulled the trigger on anything, wasn't even in the building. He was a patsy. They used him. I mean, there were... There were 13 shots fired at Dealey Plaza that day. What's lost to history, I guess, has to be dug up sometimes. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's like they just did the picture of the Irishman. Scorsese took advantage of some things. There's a, there's some answers that people have been looking for for a long time, like who shot Jimmy Hoffa, who shot Joe Gallo, uh, and Frank Sheeran. And I knew Frank Sheeran very well. You know, and there's Bobby De Niro. He's like five foot nine, and he's playing a guy my size. I mean, I, I, Frank Sheeran was from Philadelphia. I, he was six foot four, but he never killed Hoffa, and he never killed Joe Gallo. But he did drive Hoffa around, and he was, and he did work for Russell Buffalino and, and other people, and he had a, a nasty temper, and he did a few things in his life, you know. And I knew Russell Buffalino well. He was from Western Pennsylvania. He was actually from Buffalo and went to Western Pennsylvania, but he was one of the most connected dons in in, in Washington than anybody. He was a clever guy. I liked Russell, actually. Did you know Jimmy Hoffa? I knew him very well. And he's, and, and I can tell you uncategorically that Frank Shearer never killed Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. And they never will find Jimmy Hoffa's body. He's not buried anywhere. I can only imagine. Okay. His name is Jack O'Halloran. Jack, I'd like to thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. And these are incredible stories and good luck with the continuing books and the studio facilities that you're working on so you're you're a busy guy these for the next couple of years aren't you yeah <laughs> i am that that's for sure <laughs> but it's fun you know if you enjoy yeah. doing things it's not work it's you know you just enjoy doing what you're doing absolutely well and thank I, you so much for pleasure having you. my pleasure anytime my friend Special thanks to Jack O'Halloran for coming down to the Sherpa Screening Room and sharing his story. And we hope that you've enjoyed this episode as well as the rest of Hollywood Week. Yep, we've been doing shows all week if you're listening in real time, Monday through Friday. Check out the show tomorrow and see what else we've got in the Sherpa Screening Room. You can listen to this show and all of its episodes at my website, sherpalution.com. And follow me on social media at Sherpalution, at Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Mr. Bruce, please show everybody how much more powerful than a locomotive you are and escort everyone to the door. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Too Many Podcasts. Please disperse. You can go home now. I said you can go home now. Viva la Chapalition. Viva la Chapalition. <coughs> oh. Yeah, I'll come back now, you hear? <laughs>